0: Welcome to the making of the treasure of Boneyard Bay. This is Domi.
1: And this is Eileen. We want to give this official spoiler alert to warn you that if you haven't listened to the story yet, or at least read it, you should probably do that first as it might influence your listener or reader experience. In this podcast, we will address the typical making of topics you will find in a movie making of, the inspiration, the writing, the characters, the music, only you won't hear anything about the visual effects for obvious reasons and not much about the casting since Domine and I decided to do the voices just the two of us. Although some of the characters and voices were either consciously or subconsciously inspired by existing characters or actors. We'll start off talking about how the story started growing and I think Domine is the best person to tell you more about that.
0: Years ago, even before I wrote The Beast of the Western Wilds, I put together a little document describing a series of audio stories I wanted to make called Witch Hunter Legends. It was a collection of standalones about Ludlov, each putting him in a different setting with the idea of having him do what he does best, being a witch hunter. The idea was that they would be relatively short, about two hours each, and they would be more like spin-offs, whereas Witch Hunter would be the first part of a trilogy, and that would be the big story. So I made a list with a number of story ideas, most of them very, very condensed to a few lines.
1: When we decided it was time for a new story, that document turned up again, and we sat down together and expanded it a bit, throwing ideas back and forth. Some of them really appealed to both of us.
0: The one that I had the clearest picture of was a story about Ludlov in a small town in the Western Wilds facing a mysterious werewolf-like beast. That of course became The Beast of the Western Wilds. Along the way that story turned out to be quite a bit bigger and we decided to release it with the subtitle A Witch Hunter Tale rather than have it under the rubric of Witch Hunter Legends. After that I abandoned the idea of the title Witch Hunter Legends unsure when or if we could develop any of the other story ideas since I believed at the time that I really ought to focus on a proper sequel to Witch Hunter. But one of the other ideas that I really liked was the story of how Ludlov and Gustav met and I wanted that to be a seafaring adventure where we visit other parts of the world, experience a warmer climate and perhaps mix some piratey influences with the Witch Hunter setting. Just to convey that atmosphere I called it The Curse of Boneyard Bay, just because I thought that Boneyard Bay sounded like a cool location. I didn't have anything more than that and so I left it there and began to write the sequel to Witch Hunter instead, which was going to be called The Word of Wolfen. I wrote the first 150 pages or so of The Word of Wolfen in 2020, but after a while I got stuck. During brainstorming sessions with Elin, a lot of great ideas came out, but at some point, I came to feel that the overall plot was lacking. I looked at it and realized my story was too plot-driven, railroading Ludlov along a string of prophecies and quests rather than have him act like a real protagonist, and I began to have the unsettling feeling that the whole thing would have to be rewritten from scratch.
1: In the meanwhile, I had been going through a similar experience with the story Prince of Truth. It was too much like a Narnia story, and based on the mean suggestions, I rewrote it, so it took place in a fantasy world. But that made it a story set in a fantasy world in which two children escape to a fantasy world. So this made it a bit too complex, which took some strength away from the characters. Uh, moreover, I thought when I reread it, it came across too much like it had some on-the-nose messages in it while I actually hate that in other stories. So the bottom line was that we both felt we needed to rekindle our motivation after that. With the prospect of the Word of Wolfen in mind, we decided to finally launch our Patreon page, not knowing what to expect. When people began to actually sign up for that, we realized we had to deliver something substantial. And we had to do it soon.
0: At that time, however, we were still struggling with the Word of Wolfen which was looking like what musicians call the difficult second album.
1: That's when we decided to go back to the Boneyard Bay story idea, thinking that this would be a smaller story, but one that would be a lot of fun.
0: I got freed from the headache of rewriting The Word of Wolfen for a while, and we found ourselves really excited about delving into this fresh new project, intended as something smaller before we returned to the trilogy.
1: Little did we know at the time that Boneyard Bay would become bigger and more ambitious than the original Witch Hunter.
0: We did get some setbacks. Around New Year's Eve 2021, I wanted to wrap up Boneyard Bay. I pulled some kind of writing marathon and finished the story. That was the evening when Eline got ill. Eventually she wound up in the hospital with pneumonia and came out alright, but she had told me she didn't like the ending. It felt too rushed. I had time to let that sink in and I knew she was right. Shortly after that, I got ill too. Home from work with two small children, I had the time to think about the plot. After Aline got home from the hospital, the doctor gave her three more weeks time off from work to recover. She would taken on a job to help us cope with the financial challenges that the Covid situation had brought along for our company.
1: It wasn't a good start of the new year. I was in bed and on the couch for days. I even got injections to prevent blood clots, so there wasn't much I could do. So we used that time to really take an honest look at the story and eventually we could put our finger on what could be fixed. I started outlining again and Domine then started to rewrite. We announced the delay to our patrons and fans on YouTube who were all very supportive. There was even one guy who said, take all the time you need, just make it awesome. And yeah, up till then, with that ending, it was okay at most, but far from awesome.
0: That's when we added a more epic version of Tubalba's Revenge, changed the finding of the treasure scene by losing the pirates and making it more intimate. We added Queen Syntrussia, added the tunnel slicers, the pirates, the monsters, etc.
1: I remember during one of the brainstorms that Domin suddenly threw in what if the Witch Hunter Order turned up? My eyes grew white and I suddenly saw it. A great ship arriving, a kick-ass battle between scores of pirates and witch hunters. It was perfect. From then on, I started healing more quickly and when I returned to my employer, she said I looked more healthy than the year before. I guess she was right. I hated that time in the hospital, but after I got cured, it felt like our story got cured too.
0: So, going back to the beginning of the writing process, the first thing we decided was that we would be writing this story together. During Witch Hunter, Eline had helped me rework the ending and provided lots of valuable feedback that made the final production a lot better. With The Beast of the Western Wilds, we had brainstormed a lot about the story together until Elin offered to write a rough outline, just to help me get started with the writing. What she came up with was quite ambitious, and I ended up streamlining it somewhat, but most of the ideas from that outline made it into the final story. I realized then that eline is both much better and much faster at developing a good plot than I am. So with Boneyard Bay, we agreed that we would treat it as a full collaboration between the two of us.
1: We came up with a workflow that proved to be extremely fruitful, First we would work together to develop the overall storyline and the different characters in it, which was mostly a matter of talking about it for hours and hours, with me taking notes and Domine doodling pirate ships and skulls. Then I wrote out the overall plot, followed by a very detailed outline of the first chapter, which Domin then turned into a prose text, and so we continued on from that, me detailing each chapter as we went along and Domin writing it out as descriptions and dialogue.
0: During our early brainstorming sessions, we quickly concluded that this would be a treasure hunt with an Indiana Jones kind of vibe to it, and Elin suggested the much more adventurous title The Treasure of Boneyard Bay, rather than The Curse. She also came up with the idea to make it the story of how Ludlov graduated from witch hunter school, and we already knew it would tell us how he met Gustav Finsterdunkel.
1: Inspiration came from movies like National Treasure and Pirates of the Caribbean but also The Hobbit and even The Rescuers. Yes, the animated movie about the mice saving a little girl in the swamp. In fact, fans of The Hobbit movies will notice lots of little nods and references to them in Boneyard Bay. We couldn't resist putting some Skyrim references in there as well. The little wings just happened, you know, sometimes from the mean side, sometimes um, they were there in the outline. Some that were over the top got halted by the mean while writing, And others by him were cut in the final editing. But some made it through.
0: Treasure Island was another story I had in the back of my mind, as well as The Voyage of the Dawn Treader from the Narnia Chronicles, mostly for the aesthetic feel of these stories. Aline and I agreed that we wanted to avoid some standard tropes from adventure stories, not because they're bad, but because we didn't want this to feel like a carbon copy of other treasure hunts.
1: One was overemphasizing the MacGuffin storytelling device, a term that refers to some valuable item that everyone in the story wants to have and that changes hands all the time. This concept works well in many movies, but the idea of the treasure being found, stolen and retrieved again and again and again was just not what we wanted to explore, as in reality it often just becomes dull and frustrating.
0: We also didn't want to introduce a rival group of treasure hunters That would constantly be on the heels of our heroes, leeching off of their success or using more brutish tactics to achieve the same results, like the Sean Bean character in National Treasure. We simply felt that this idea was a bit overdone and would burden us with the introduction of too many characters at once.
1: We also really wanted to tell the story from Ludlow's point of view and that was simply not compatible with showing the activities of a rival group following them.
0: Of course, you will notice that at least part of the treasure does get stolen by pirates at one point, and our protagonists are indeed followed by a group of people who want the treasure for themselves, but this is treated more as a late revelation rather than a consistent thread of the plot.
1: After outlining the plot, that's when my job started. The actual plot development in detail. Some scenes were pretty detailed with suggestions for dialogue, or even parts of the dialogue, while other parts were very rough. I would just write, they have a kick-ass awesome fight that will blow your mind or something. I based myself on the notes I'd taken during our brainstorms, but added a great amount of details. Whenever personal relations were involved, I just went for it. But when it was more embedded in the lore, I always checked with Domi. I also used our world anvil quite a bit, to look up details about Ludloff's past and upbringing, for example.
0: When writing a story, the beginning and the conclusion tend to be easier to determine than the middle. We knew it would be a long journey, so we needed to come up with some dangers before the characters reached Boneyard Bay.
1: Even before our heroes reach Brughaven, there is a scene in which the ship needs repairs and we have a Ludlov-Gustav action scene where they have to work together to fend off some creatures. We thought that was an interesting scene to break the easygoing travel pace for a while and also to illustrate that the Ludlov-Gustav dynamic is not perfect from the start. But we decided it was not a necessary scene to enjoy the story, so we kept it for the extended edition.
0: Then we had the attack of Tubalba, which was a pivotal scene. At that point, we didn't know yet that the creature would return though. We also knew we wanted an ancient temple full of traps and riddles. Eventually, the temple scenes became kind of like a mini-movie within a big movie. Much like the Moria scenes in The Lord of the Rings.
1: I had a great deal of fun working those traps and riddles out. I love escape games and I was a big fan of the Myst series when I was young. So actually we started off having some vague, basic ideas that developed themselves. A lot of the things we wanted in the story didn't find their way in there in the end. Other things we had not anticipated suddenly turned out to play a big part
0: in it. One of our patrons in the saint tier, Peter Strandkrone, was so kind to send us some questions about our stories, some about the treasure of Boneyard Bay in particular. He asked us how we came up with the small talk in the story between the characters. And actually, We both think that's a lot of fun to write. It's hardest in the early scenes because at that point you still have to get to know the characters a bit. Fortunately in this particular story Ludlov is in the same boat as we are pardon the pun. He strikes up conversations with these people he doesn't really know very well and so he just sits back a bit and lets them talk, asking questions now and then and just letting them introduce themselves.
1: Someone like Alvarado or Gustav appreciates an attentive audience, and so this is an opportunity for them to express themselves. In the process, the audience gets to know that character a little better, and so do we as authors. As soon as we start to feel more comfortable with their personalities, it simply becomes a matter of putting these characters together in a scene, knowing them like you would know a personal friend, and letting them bounce off of each other. That's when it's at its most fun.
0: Peter was also curious about how we knew if our listeners would find certain elements interesting or funny. And he wanted to know how we were able to connect these elements to the overall story. Of course we can't know what our listeners will like or dislike, but we do know what we do and don't like. In the end, the banter in our stories will always be somewhat reflective of our own personalities, even though there are different characters talking within the stories. For example, the extremely snappy, witty dialogue between Daniel Craig and Eva Green in Casino Royale is not something that I could or would ever write. The occasional wisecrack is nice, but I don't like conversations to feel like cleverness contests or be overly sarcastic, which is sometimes a problem in my opinion when people try to write fun, light-hearted banter.
1: So the style of the dialogues is mostly within the realm of our own tastes. As for connection to the overall story, of course, every scene needs to contribute to that in some sense. Even the moment when Alvarado lets Ludlov taste his home-cooked wraps serves to establish Alvarado's character traits, deepen the friendship between him and Ludlov, and show that he has dreams and plans outside of the witch hunter order. All of which helps to make his eventual death much more tragic, especially since his lover of great food becomes a meal himself to a legendary sea creature.
0: Peter asked us if we are both equally good at coming up with scenic details in the story. And I'd say, yes, but each in a different way. Eline is best at a different kind of detail. Continuity, the precise workings of a puzzle or a plot mechanic, as well as details concerning the psychology and relationships between the characters.
1: Domine is best at describing the details that give life to the setting, such as the smells and colors of the environment, little character mannerisms and quirks, etc. Not everyone is fond of such details, but we think they're very important to create an immersive atmosphere.
0: Crankwar was in fact the first trial our heroes had to face. But it was also just an excuse for us to put a cool creature in our story. We always wanted Ruda to feel more like an epic fantasy setting and So far in our stories, we've only really encountered the human race. We do intend to have you meet more creatures and different races in the future. Crankwor was such a legendary beast that just seemed cool. Since it was a bit of a pirate adventure, you have to have a, a lot of cool sea creatures on the journey.
1: His look, voice and part in the story was actually the product of a brainstorm where we both exchanged many ideas. When we introduced him, we didn't know he'd still have a huge part to play in the story later on, but I guess it was only natural. He was way too cool to just have him show up as a guardian of Garadoso and then just leave him be for the rest of the story. In that case, we could have actually cut him out for the extended edition. Now he plays a pivotal part in the end battle.
0: To get this true adventure feel, we needed to come up with quite some trials and challenges. It was a challenge to keep those scenes consistent. Some trials needed to take place in the dark, so we had to find solutions to the altercation between light and darkness. For example, by having the torches extinguished and then lit again or introducing new light sources. If we reflect upon those temple scenes, They feel a lot like a tabletop RPG, like D&D, with all the traps, riddles and even a kind of end boss at the end. This sequence concludes with the defeat of the undead creatures, you might call them, Inca zombies or or Aztec zombies, I don't know enough about that to really tell the difference between Inca and and Aztec, and of course their chief, the Bloodfather, as the end boss.
1: The gate of the temple introduces the idea that our party members will be put to the test in body, mind and soul. That implies the trials will require physical strength, wits and good moral choices. To be honest, I kind of forgot we introduced this at the beginning, when they entered the Kulmaron temple, but in the end we found that this was really the case. They naturally stumbled upon challenges that responded to this. Opening the temple gate already required both their physical strength and wits.
0: The sand trap is a bit of a test of courage to move on and it also tests their trust in each other, as now they'll have to really rely on each other, especially in the dark.
1: Then the puzzle with the mythical dragon Axarkalox is mainly a test of wits too, especially knowledge of the gypsy history. Then it also involves a bit of physical trial. Navigating in a pitch black dangerously cluttered room is a challenge in itself. This was clearly inspired by our own living room at times, when our kids played Floor is Lava. Since we got two small children and our day jobs, our household is often the first thing that gets neglected. Sometimes we have to navigate our living room in the dark as well, when one of our kids is thirsty and asks for a bottle of water during the night. The Nomaki look is something that just came to me, I don't know how. I just couldn't find a satisfying way to resolve it. The code had to be something they could come up with or that was hidden somewhere. Maybe it was hidden at the bottom of the basin with the spikes. Then I thought the best solution was if they already knew the combination. That's when Federhals' cultural knowledge came in handy again. I remember the Konami code and that was eventually my inspiration for the solution of this challenge.
0: The TORCH trial was inspired by a love of language, both learning and creating languages. This is a topic we are both passionate about. I studied Latin in high school and Elin also picked a schedule with lots of languages. In Flanders we start learning French around the age of 10 and around 13 we get introduced to English and German. And we both also took optional Spanish classes, Elin even took some Polish lessons. At university we both studied Germanic languages with a focus on English and Dutch. I also did an extra class in Swahili and Aline took a couple of lessons in the gothic language but we never used any of those actively besides of course our mother tongue and English so now we just have some vague notions of these other languages. Still, the interest in languages remained and sometimes finds its way into her current stories. Like in this one. Needless to say we love it when world building comes in the form of full-fledged linguistically realistic languages like in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings and James Cameron's Avatar.
1: So, I wanted to do something with language from the start. We brainstormed about it as Domina developed some aspects of the language system already. I explained to him the concept of the trial and a bit about the don't show your enemy strength hint and a twist about some words being covered by moss, and he filled in the details.
0: The spixolettals were not really part of the trial itself. It just happened to be the case that they had been nesting in the shafts over the years, and when they came out, they actually almost sabotaged the resolution of the riddle.
1: I imagined the heat of the torches making the air travel upwards and pressing against the mechanism. Giant insects nesting in there would block that mechanism, so they had to get rid of the nest and the dangerous creatures first. That fight gave this knowledge-based quest a bit more oomph, as we realize not everyone is into that kind of thing.
0: The Bats was a short scene that for a little while seemed to have the real threat of a new creature but actually allowed the characters a bit of rest instead. I think it's important, uh, even in horror movies, to have a moment where the characters can take a breath for a while during a horrible chase. This part leads into one of the last trials, the tree, and it marks the boundary between the darkness of the temple and the indoor staircase and the more outdoor setting of the tree.
1: The image of the setting of the tree just came to me. Maybe it was inspired by the rare caves in Skyrim that had beautiful patches of nature in them, with buzzing insects, rays of sunlight and fantastic trees. And maybe that got mixed up in my mind with the broken buildings of Fallout. So I think this was a Bethesda-inspired location. I really loved the idea so much and knew it was going to be in there, so we established that part of the temple was destroyed from the start.
0: We think that on any epic journey you need to have moments of discovery where the characters are the first people in centuries to lay eyes on a glorious sight. With the tree we wanted to surprise the audience a bit with a garden of natural beauty in the midst of this dank dungeon. There's a nice riddle here too that would be right at home in one of the point and click adventure games we both enjoyed when we were younger.
1: The head is the final stage of the temple quest. It's where a small battle takes place with the undead, and there we meet the end boss. Since the party has noticed the head on top of the temple, they know, as long as they're heading upwards, that they are getting closer to the end of the trials. So the head is a clear, visual goal they want to achieve. It's where they assume they will find the treasure, or at least something substantial. The end boss fight takes place there. It's where their lives really get in danger. It describes those creatures in the outline as evil Inca zombies, and the Min developed the creatures lore wise and their looks. It's a necessary battle scene. Eventually, they need the Bloodfather's Warhammer to escape the head and get the chest.
0: The chest was put there to make the audience think that's where the treasure was. But we always knew the head would be the most impractical place to put a treasure of the size we had in mind. So there had to be a payoff there that turned out to be essential to find the treasure in the end and that could have been a credible treasure as well, which turned out to be the crown of Kulmaron. Of all the treasure hunts, we always loved national treasure a lot because in the end, in that movie, after all the trials the characters went through, You just want to reward them with a treasure beyond their wildest dreams.
1: A fancy crown made for a giant is pretty cool, but it's not a massive amount of gold, jewelry and ancient artifacts. That's what you want, right, in the end? So we made sure the crown was an essential part of the trials, and here's where the soul mentioned at the gate comes into play, as they don't just have to make a practical decision here, but a moral one as well. And we didn't want to overdo the moral challenges, as I really tend to get fed up with video games that are all about moral decisions. As a writer, if you want to do that, you automatically claim the moral high ground and we really don't feel like that is our goal nor our place.
0: We always knew we had to lose Fedahel as the first casualty of the party. And when he dies, it instantly raises the stakes. In fact, it changes the the tone of the entire story at that point. Elin's initial idea was that they would be lost without him as he was such an asset in solving the puzzles and that he would get killed right before their final trial to get to the treasure. The story took a slightly different angle as Federhel didn't get killed by the blood father as you might have expected. Instead, the character's decisions sent the story in a much more personal direction.
1: This was often the case in the story. I had very clear ideas about the development of the plot But it was like the characters came to life and started arguing with me. Sometimes I just let them have their way. I think this goes for the entire story. That the characters carried the story on their shoulders. It organically grew based on the characters' decisions. Sometimes it really felt like I had little to do with it anymore and I just wrote down whatever felt logical for the characters to do next. For example, the party didn't have many options after the temple besides returning to the ship and await their next challenge. Even if Ludlow had a funny gut feeling.
0: We talked about clichés and tropes in one of our storytelling podcast episodes. See the link in the YouTube video description. And I think it's more of a trope than a cliché to have pirates in a seafaring adventure story. Especially one that involves a treasure. And as often, our heroes are held captive by the pirates. This is caused by one of their vicious plants called art. It is suggested that Gustav's drunken babbling in the tavern was what caused the pirates to chase our friends and return as soon as they had planted their mole. Having the heroes kidnapped is another way to create tension in the story without having to make the treasure the MacGuffin all the time. In doing so, we could delay the moment of them finding the treasure to make it extra fulfilling in the end.
1: In the end, it's the return and revenge of Tubalbar that turns up as a sort of catastrophic opportunity and saves the heroes from the claws of the pirates, albeit causing grave collateral damage in the form of the destruction of the Teresia and Alvarado's life. We had both grown to love him as a character and wanted to give him an epic heroic ending. I loved Domine granting him a ceremony and a post-mortem title. This event also got Cotignac's crew thinned out and gave our heroes some time while the pirates regrouped behind the scenes.
0: In gaming terms, it also gave them the time to regain their strength and stamina. We also introduced the family of Carlos, the fisherman, as friends and saviors. This brought back a bit of the charm and travel vibe that we got on the way to Boneyard Bay, albeit with a more melancholy undertone. We also discover what the regular townsfolk of this place are like, which gives Boneyard Bay a slightly different atmosphere.
1: I love the atmosphere that Tomin came up with for Boneyard Bay. He introduced the fact that the entire town was built up by racks and that there was so much wood that they didn't use fires to create light, only lanterns for safety. Still, it had this rough piratey feel to it that made it completely unique. It reminded me of Bree a bit.
0: In the end, it's a very typical pirate town. I think it was actually inspired by an illustration that I found online, as well as the city of Lion's Arch in Guild Wars 2.
1: It takes our friends quite some time to find a treasure. This is another typical treasure adventure trope. One that we find really works. You look forward to them discovering the treasure while you can enjoy the ride of riddles and puzzles to get there. We also thought it was important to have a treasure of significant size.
0: It had to single-handedly repair the poor state the economy of Seven Peaks is in at the start of the journey. Since you know what's at stake politically, you also know the treasure can't be a small box of St. jewellery.
1: Domine came up with the aquatic theme of the cave, which I really liked. It made me think about the fort Pirates of the Caribbean movie in a way. It gave the finding of the treasure an otherworldly feel that reminds the audience that it's not just any treasure hunt, but one in a fantasy world. Ivan Dutch's music works perfectly in that scene.
0: At first we wanted to unleash a curse on the heroes, since it was foreshadowed a bit, but we decided we'd rather have a simpler end-trial that only Blessed Zelenheim could successfully complete, making her vital to the journey, but still avoiding a disturbance of that idyllic environment in a brief moment of peace, before all hell breaks loose again.
1: At first, we didn't plan to do a final confrontation with a whole bunch of pirates. Our first version went like this. We had Cotignac along for the journey, even as they discovered the treasure. Then, in the treasure room, because Cotignac totally disregarded the precautions to prevent being cursed, he ended up becoming a creature they had to defeat in order to break that curse. Cotignac was almost unrecognizable as a human. But there was just no satisfying way to deal with this confrontation.
0: The foreshadowed curse is still there in the final version. Most likely there is still a hidden curse there, one that actually influences the events in Witch Hunter. Blessed Zelenheim establishes there could be a conditional curse attached to the chest. We certainly think there is. The events in the epilogue of the extended edition shed some light on that, but some of it remains a mystery and is open to speculation.
1: We both love big epic and battles. After all, we love The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, both the novels and Peter Jackson's movies. The idea to have one of these at the climax of our story came surprisingly late, though. As the story was developed, we had a vague idea of having an awesome fight between two giant monsters, just because we thought that was cool. And after having killed Alvarado, I just couldn't go on killing Chapelle. We always thought it would be natural to have all new characters who didn't show up in Witch Hunter killed. But after Federal and Alvarado, I just couldn't. I thought it would be awesome to end her story on a mysterious note. Is she still alive or not? At first, when we still had a small battle plant in the treasure cave, a mysterious vigilante would track them down and save Ludlov's life. That person would be an amazing dagger-thrower. So that's why we established Chapelle as a character who was awesome with daggers. The listener would be left wondering if this mysterious person was Chappelle or not, and be left with the question, is she alive or dead? But in the end, we just didn't find a satisfying way to write that scene and we abandoned it. And I'm glad we did, because now we have an intimate little of Chapelle moment instead of an anonymous rescue scene.
0: This is where we got stuck for a while and brainstormed a lot. We decided to skip that part for a while and turn to the idea of a battle between two creatures. We had already come up with the Rotocha and were exchanging ideas to develop a new monster, but we just didn't find a creature cool enough. And the idea of having the Rotocha and Nia fight all the Tunnel Slicers just didn't feel impressive enough for us. We were so sold on the idea of having a one-on-one battle between two legendary creatures.
1: Then it struck us, Crankor was such a cool creature and he had this one job. It would be sad not to bring him back. And if Chappelle were to survive, it would have been by either divine intervention or some big sea creature saving her life. So having Chappelle return on the back of Crankwor was the ultimate solution. And the music for that part by Dane Leonardson was just perfect. I got goosebumps when I first heard the edited scene. It was the perfect end for such an epic, multi-layered battle full of enemies, heroes and creatures.
0: I always loved how Tolkien took a good deal of time to wrap his stories up. Elena and I always agreed we wanted to include that journey back and the impact of the quest on Ludlov as the main character. We thought that was really important.
1: First we wanted to lead them back by another road, passing Marnosa, and then go back through Goldar on horseback and with a cart. We knew that by then they would have lost the Theresia. But in the end the story just took another turn and our friends retraced their steps by the sea with the threat of Tubalbar being taken out. Ludlov is always a central character of the witch hunter stories, and no matter what the plot is about, ultimately the event should either change him or reveal something about him. Since we had decided that the treasure of Boneyard Bay was set very early in his witch hunter career, we knew that we would be seeing a different Ludlov here. The murder of his wife is still very fresh in his memory. And when we meet him, he is so consumed by that trauma and his desire to right that wrong that he simply doesn't pay attention to other people anymore.
0: This is not the man we meet in The Beast of the Western Wilds, where he takes a keen interest in the villagers and their personal struggles. The Treasure of Boneyard Bay is the story of how Ludlov learns to care again, learns to have friends and give meaning to his life. He even feels a romantic connection to a woman again which puts him to the test. Will he choose the life of a witch hunter, or will he abandon that goal to start a new family? In the end, he chooses for the former, having discovered that he was made for it. But now, he doesn't choose it solely for his personal vengeance, but really to fight the good fight and help other people. Of course, his obsession with the black sickle is still there and will continue to flare up from time to time over the following years, until he meets Samina.
1: Our idea was also to see him grow into the Ludlof we know from the other stories by slowly adding some of his typical attributes. His miniature crossbow, the hat, and finally the ring that summons Falkrin. We love the idea of having a story behind each of these attributes, so that when you listen to the beast or a witch hunter again, you now know that Chappelle's hat he's wearing, and you got that little crossbow from Gustav. He is not just an isolated individual, but he has a history, and different sorts of relationships with other people.
0: Early on we knew we wanted a colourful group of characters to join Ludlov on this quest. But we also knew he would have to lose most of his friends since they're obviously not there anymore in Witch Hunter. That in itself was a story worth telling. First, we thought about the roles they would fulfill in the story, and just like in an RPG, we came up with a rough idea of a party. We just brainstormed about how many members it would have, which ones would be male or female, and their ranks, initiate, witch hunter, or master witch hunter. Also, we wanted to involve a cleric that eventually became Priestess Ulla Zelenheim from the Vox Dea.
1: Since you wanted to show that the world was bigger than Seven Peaks, and bigger than Evendendale, we love the idea of having an international cast of characters here. Since the Witch Hunter Order is unique to Seven Peaks, it makes sense that occasionally, people from other countries would travel all the way to that city to pursue this career. And since the adventurers would be visiting Goldor and Isklavia, it wasn't a bad idea for the Witch Hunters to send members of their order with ties to those places. And so we have Chapelle to represent Goldor and Alvarado from Isklavia. Turmgaard and Federhell were in aliens, as we imagined the majority of witch hunters would still be.
0: We did not put too much rational thought into it, though. Most decisions came intuitively. We didn't put these characters in so our French listeners, if any, could identify with Chapelle or the Spanish ones with Alvarado. In the end, we hope everyone can identify with our main character, Ludlov, in the end. As it's his point of view you get, his journey.
1: Chapelle was a character that grew naturally. At first we just wanted to have a young female witch hunter in the group because it's just an appealing image. I also thought it interesting to have a female character outranking Ludlow and how he would react to that. I personally didn't think Ludlow would be interested in her, as he was still grieving for his wife. But as the story unfolded, it became almost unavoidable that these two would click.
0: I immediately liked Chapelle. In fact, I think I still have a little bit of a crush on her. Despite the fact that she bears a physical resemblance to Maria, like she's a blonde, she also shares some character traits with her, such as her artistic talents. All of those things become a lot clearer in the flashbacks into Ludlov's earlier life with Maria that are in the extended edition of The Treasure of Boneyard Bay. Also, if you've listened to that version, you'll have noticed Ludlov meets both of them while on a journey.
1: Chapelle also has a lot in common with Ludlov himself. She is traumatized, as he is, but also a strong individual who responds to that pain with a fiery desire to set right what is wrong. Chapelle doesn't have the positive experiences with Arcanic that Ludlov does, however, and so she has a more straightforward take on magic. She hates it. Despite her fierce devotion to the cause and her ability to fight, Chapelle is also a refined and sensitive woman, even revealed to have considerable artistic talent. This combination makes her particularly attractive to Ludlov.
0: In turn, she sees in him a kindred spirit who is a bit more tempered by age. He's dark and mysterious, but also a real gentleman, and that appeals to her a great deal. Nevertheless, Ludlov's devotion to the order and to his deceased wife, as well as Chapelle's vow to destroy the evil in the Baudouac forest, makes romance between them impossible, and they part as friends.
1: We also noticed after the writing process that both character arcs kind of mirror each other. Chapelle starts out as a loyal witch-hunter with unwavering faith and ends up killing von Baumeister and leaving the order, while Ludlow starts out skeptical about their mission and ends up as a loyal witch-hunter returning to Seven Peaks to complete his training.
0: A real romance would not be possible and far too early for Ludlow, but we did believe a deep friendship would help him out of his solipsistic brooding.
1: Ludlov develops this not only with Chapelle, but also with Alvarado, whose unwavering happiness and loyalty are so disarming that he finds himself forming a bond with this young man.
0: We knew that the idea of a dashing Mediterranean man with a charming smile who loves wine, food and women was a big cliché, but it was a cliché we love and completely embraced in this character. At times, Alvarado serves as a comic relief, but he is one of the most important reasons why Ludlov doesn't turn into the brooding anti-hero cliché. Alvarado restores Ludlov's faith in humanity, and his ability to trust those close to him.
1: Losing Alvarado is absolutely devastating, but after all Ludlow has been through, he has also learned not to draw the wrong conclusions from this loss. Rather than turning against the world again, Lulov wants to make Alvarado's sacrifice meaningful. We knew from the start that Alvarado and Lulov would get along very well, and there just would have been mention of him in Witch Hunter if he were alive, because he would preoccupy Ludlov's mind. So we wanted to give him an epic ending worthy of his great personality.
0: In the typical RPG party setup, You need to have a character to be the strong one, and of course another one to be the smart one. These roles are taken on by Turmgard and Faderhel respectively. In each case, of course we wanted there to be more to the character than just their D&D statistics. We already knew the party would be led by a stern and judgmental witch hunter master, and so we turned Turmgard into his annoying sidekick. He follows his master everywhere and always agrees with him, Hoping to receive praise and validation, but instead he is treated as a lapdog. It takes a long time for him to be shaken out of that illusion, but when he wakes up, Tumgard discovers he has far more to offer than he himself had ever imagined.
1: Vederhal, on the other hand, is a carefree character. He has a great deal to offer the party due to his book smarts, but he also has a wide-eyed innocent quality. He comes from a simple background and has little real-world experience, but nevertheless he enjoys the adventure, as if he's reading it in a book rather than being exposed to the dangers himself.
0: Von Baumeister starts off as their leader, but eventually turns into the first villain they have to deal with, while the story gradually introduces greater villains to the party, like Cotignac, El Padre and Aad. In a way, the story naturally grew into an RPG campaign much more than we intended, I guess we only realized it when we started listening to it as a whole.
1: Besides the Witch Hunter Order, the Church of the Goddess is represented on this journey as well. And for that we have the character of blessed Ulla Seelenheim. History is full of living saints, but how rarely do we encounter them in modern storytelling? In this case we really wanted Seelenheim to be a pure and holy person, without turning her into a one-dimensional caricature whose only attributes are niceness and purity. And so she became the party's main fish-out-of-water character. She belongs in a quiet atmosphere where she can pray and study, but her ability to lift curses puts her on this journey. At times she is extremely uncomfortable out in the wilds, but she always makes the best of it, even when she's terrified and exhausted. She also becomes a mentor figure to Ludlow. Like Lady Hoskiff, she represents the mother he never knew, but unlike Hoskiff, Zelenheim is a soft and gentle person, comforting him when he has doubts and fears.
0: Finally, the character of Gustav Finsterdunkel is essential to this story. While Ludlow strikes a bond with Alvarado and Chapelle, the only friendship that lasts beyond the end of this story is the one he forges with Gustav. They are an unlikely match, however, since the two couldn't be more different. Nevertheless, we think they complete each other in a way that makes for an interesting dynamic.
1: Gustav is also the catalyst of the story. He makes things happen. He launches the quest with his statuette, he is the one to summon to Balbar with his cannon, and eventually he holds the key to the treasure and their whole endeavor.
0: Of course, there is good and evil in the world of Ruda. von Baumeister, is the first one to confront us with that. He shows us the dark side of the Evenandalians and the Witch Hunter Order. While Lady Hoskive in Witch Hunter is led astray by evil, but struggles with it and in the end seems to regret at least some of her decisions, von Baumeister clearly decides to succumb to it completely.
1: Like we said, Von Baumeister actually turns into the first villain of the story. Unless you count the seagulls, and of course the razor mods in the extended edition. And as our heroes level up, they encounter bigger and meaner villains. Art as a pirate mole is something most of you will probably have seen coming. It wasn't meant to be a surprise or twist for the listener, more like an extra challenge for Ludlov in his journey to make a fair decision about trusting people or not.
0: Ard is also the one who shows the dark side of the Flatlanders. He's kind of the anti-Gustave, who is of course a good guy at heart. Ard is just plain evil. Céline had a party writing bits of brutal dialogue for the pirates. She had lots of cruel inspiration apparently, I was a bit taken aback by that. In the end, I think Ard grew into our main villain. It was only logical that he would be taken out by Ludlov, as it got personal when Ard marked his love interest for life, and almost sent her to the sharks.
1: Cotignac in his turn shows the dark side of the Goldorians, while Chapelle represents a virtuous Goldorian. Cotignac is taken out by Captain Breukelhoff, which felt like a good payoff afterwards, as the pirate captain stole everything that was dear to him, stole his ship and killed his entire crew.
0: El Padre is a higher ranked villain, but much less of a personal threat. Afterwards, we realized we had intuitively matched up the villains with the right heroes to be defeated.
1: The treasure of Boneyard Bay expanded the world of Ruda and obviously needed some new creatures in it. And those were a lot of fun to come up with.
0: Tubalbar is probably the most important creature in the story since he returns to take revenge, like any cool creature from horror movies. He makes their journey more difficult but also helps them escape the pirates near the end of the quest.
1: Tubalbar was not really a villain, But every seafaring adventure needs an awesome sea monster. A giant sea serpent was perfect to break their idyllic cruise and turn it into a nightmare from the start.
0: Peter Strandkroner asked us if we got the idea of the sea serpent from Norse mythology. Like Elin said, these creatures have been in seafaring adventures since forever. And if you're going to do one of those in a fantasy world, you have to have an encounter with a sea serpent. If anything, I think the inspiration for me, primarily came from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, book 5, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader.
1: Yes, I think that's true for me as well, since that was probably our biggest source of inspiration since we first started talking about the possible seafaring adventure introducing Gustav as a character in the world of Ruda.
0: Crankwar was a joint effort when it comes to his looks and feel, and even his name. He came right out of our brainstorm sessions and we just thought he would be a cool addition. Jurassic Park was the first live-action movie I watched in the theatres and I was pretty obsessed with dinosaurs as a child, like most kids I guess. So as a dinosaur nut I came up with the crown of horns that he has on his head. Uh, I guess there's also a bit of the mind flare in there from Dungeons and Dragons which itself was inspired by Cthulhu, I think. Eline wanted to give it a cyclops kind of look and thought of the double crab-like pinches. All of that blended into our original idea of having a giant squid or octopus before deciding that that might have been a bit too cliché.
1: In the end, Crancor became a unique creature that was both scary and awesome. It seemed ancient and wise, but a real threat as well. You definitely want him on your side.
0: I guess the Gorehounds were a bit inspired by the hellhounds from the tabletop board game Descent Journeys in the Dark. We just wanted to make the pirates more of a threat by having them ride these saliva-dripping, awful, rabid dogs from hell. Maybe the wargs from the Hobbit movies, and the dinosaur Carnotaur, the Carnotaurus, was an inspiration as well. I always thought the idea of a carnivorous creature with horns an intriguing image, since in nature horned creatures are usually herbivores.
1: For me, the Rotocha Yania was basically a giant mole rat from Fallout. For Domin, the rat ogre from Warhammer was an inspiration for that creature. Besides the teeth and claws of a rodent, the creature had gorilla-like arms. The eyes were sewn closed. That's just one of those horror movie cliches that must have been used here and there. It stuck with me from a short story by Dutch author Paul van Loon about a witch named Luna whose eyes were sewn closed by the villagers to keep them safe from her curses. Another Dutch author, Thomas Oldehoeveld, borrowed that idea for his novel Hex, which is translated into English, so probably more well-known to you.
0: After all, Eye contact can be intimidating and the idea of a creature having a hold on you by staring at you is an intriguing one.
1: I came up with the name of the creature by playing around with Google Translate. I often translate words into different exotic languages and then just combine words or syllables that sound good. I believe that's how we came up with Dubalbar 2. Domin has the final say when it comes to character and creature names and lore elements, but he liked the ring of Rotocha Yania especially because it was a name in two parts. In Belgium, parents often give their children two first names or a compound of two names because that sounds fancy. So it was fitting that this legendary beast fit for a pirate lord would also have a name like that. But had we named it Jean-Jacques, that would probably have made the creature a bit less scary.
0: We actually didn't name the undead guardians of the temple, just their leader, the Bloodfather. I think, for both of us, the movie Apocalypto was a big source of inspiration. To Dane, who did the music for that part, I just referred to them as Aztec droger, and knowing Skyrim, Dane immediately knew what sound we needed.
1: The Spixol were inspired by Skyrim's chorus hunters min shaped their bodies like crescent moons, which I thought was intriguing. So they were like vicious flying croissants with stingers. We both don't like bugs, obviously. I have a huge problem with mosquitoes, who seem to also have a huge problem with me. So the urge to have some kind of bugs in the temple as an obstacle or nuisance came automatically. The min gave me pointers as to what the name should sound like, as I'd first come up with something else. It needed a more Aztec-inspired name, like Quetzalcoatl.
0: Originally, we wanted the tunnel slicers to turn up in the cave with the treasure, as a final battle to get to the chests. But we ended up not doing that. It would have ruined the peaceful mood of that part of the story. At first, they also looked more crab-like. Now, they still have some crab-like features, but are at the core just giant spiders, which we are both not fond of either.
1: Ronan currently loves spiders, so he'd probably think of us as traitors if he found out we finished off a horde of spiders in our story. Just like the Lord of the Rings, we just think spiders work really well in tunnels and caves.
0: The fun part was, of course, to come up with the sound effects for all of these creatures. And the same goes for the character voices. Not only did the characters all have their specific part to play in the story and have their own set of talents, interests, quirks, fears and flaws, creating an audiobook first and foremost, we had the benefit of the medium to create a voice for each and every one of those characters and creatures.
1: The Treasure of Boneyard Bay was different from some of our previous efforts since Domine performs all of the male characters and I did all of the female characters. There are also a few spoken lines by small children and of course we reserved those parts for our boys, Ronan and Liam. I didn't write them in on purpose, but I did like the idea of having small children in the story to add a childlike innocence to it. And I did make them boys just for convenience sake. They had asked us a couple of times if they could work with us on our stories, so they loved the idea. And considering the fact that they never speak English at all, they handled it beautifully. Is that you? Are you Monster Hunters?
0: We chose for this approach of using basically two voices since Boneyard Bay has the biggest cast of characters of any of our productions so far, and we realized it wouldn't be feasible to cast a different actor for each part. With each additional actor, the complexity of production and the time needed to complete it increases significantly. If we had gone for a full cast, the treasure of Boneyard Bay probably would still be in the production phase. Of course, some of the roles we performed were already familiar to us. Getting back into Ludlov's voice, for example, was a joy, as always. It almost feels like he's a separate entity living in my body at this point. Initially, I considered making his voice a little less gruff, indicating that he was a bit younger during the events of Boneyard Bay. But it just didn't feel like the Ludlov I had come to know and love so well when I did that. So I just ended up performing him the same way I always had. After all, the second Avatar movie got away with giving Grace's much younger daughter the exact same voice as Sigourney Weaver. Well, it was Sigourney Weaver. And by the way, some people sound the same for the biggest part of their lives. Did not the poet Vigilus write that at the center of every man's eye is a black circle? There is darkness in the midst of our gaze that expands when we look into darkness.
1: For me, Lady Hoskiff was the easiest character to get into, since I had already played her before. Although it did take some getting used to again, as it had been quite a while. It also took a bit of trial and error to get back to that original voice, but it helped that my first scenes in the story were with this character. That made it slightly easier to get back into it. Fear not, Ludlow. Blessed Seelenheim has already written to me. I will ensure that the Queen's wishes will be honored.
0: It was the same for me with Lord Adomir. That was a character I had already played, albeit a while back. His voice is really my tribute to the late Sir Christopher Lee, whom I've always admired. Irene made me do a number of retakes, though. She's tough, but fair, and the end result is better. Initially, my Adomé didn't have quite the same air of authority he had in Witch Hunter. I had to stand up straight and stick out my chest to perform this character. Astounding. Even the shopkeeper has survived.
1: In the original Witch Hunter audiobook, the part of Gustav Vinstedunko was played by Aron Bodanovic.
0: Oh, alright, how's that ring working out for you? You know, the, the one I gave you once? The, the one that connects you to, the,
1: to a bird? Domin would now take over that role and part of the challenge was to make his Gustav sound recognizable enough without it turning into a silly parody of Aron's performance, which we both really liked.
0: I decided not to worry too much about sounding like Aaron and instead focused on my own performance. Gustav has a Dutch accent and I apologize to all of our Dutch listeners, I know it's quite an exaggerated one, but then again he's also a flamboyant character. Oh please, call me Gustav, I just know a lot about the treasure, I'll be a guide so to speak.
1: Alvarado would have to have a Spanish accent and a lot of charm, so naturally Domín took inspiration from Antonio Banderas. We watched the Zorro movies before recording, which gave him a chance to play around with an accent and a voice that is quite foreign to him.
0: I can't tell if I did it well in the end, but I can always hide behind the excuse that Alvarado isn't actually from Spain. He's from Esclavia. I'm happy I chose to become a witch hunter and not a priest the celibacy I can handle, if barely. But all that fasting would really be too much.
1: For Chapelle, we really wanted to avoid the trap of a French accent that sounds like something from a comedy sketch. Her character needed to sound believable and be able to project both toughness and gentleness. We wanted to avoid the use of a very explicitly French R and instead made her sound more like an actual French woman speaking English. It's some sort of symbol. One of many I saw in the woods of Baudouac.
0: We found the perfect example in the voice of the character Liliana from the video game Dragon Age Origins. I had to show eline some YouTube clips because, while she had played Dragon Age, she'd never met Liliana since she had everyone killed in the village where you're supposed to meet her.
1: For the Dutch at Federhals funeral, we did go for a French r, which Peter was at first opposed to, but we felt it was only natural since the song was actually in Chappelle's mother tongue.
0: Since Federhell is the intellectual of the group, at first we wanted to give him a German accent to evoke the image of a professor. But when I tried it, it sounded too stereotypical and made him come across as a bit snooty. Therefore I wanted to go in a completely different direction. Since Fedahel is actually from a rural background, I wanted to give him more of a working-class British accent, but I also wanted to shy away from anything like Cockney. I had been enjoying the Warhammer fantasy audiobooks of the Gotrek and Felix series for a while, where the narrator had given some of the characters a Yorkshire accent, which I really liked. It sounded down-to-earth and made Fedahel come across as just a normal lad who happened to have read a lot of books, which is exactly what I wanted. Unfortunately, looking back, I have to admit that I completely botched the accent for the first half of the book. Only by the time Fedahel was about to leave the story did I feel that I got his voice. Oh well, maybe someday I'll re-record his lines, for the 50th anniversary special even more extended edition. With all due respect, Master, we are witch hunters. or training to become such... It's not our first duty to fight the demonic.
1: Blessed Selenheim's voice was a difficult one to figure out. We thought of giving her an Irish accent at first, but since our story is full of various European accents while it's actually set in another universe, ultimately I decided to just create a new accent that didn't exist yet. The truth is, I really suck at accents. I know I can deliver a decent performance emotionally, but. While for some people accents take no effort to learn, it cost me a lot of energy to keep them consistent. So instead, I picked a few typical aspects of some dialects, Irish among them. In doing that, I had the ability to make Zehlenheim sound like a warm and gentle person. She speaks softly and patiently without venturing in stereotypical old lady territory. It did take me a while to really get her voice, so naturally I demanded a lot of retakes from myself. My point is, no nation of men has ever managed to remain on the island for long and so we all believe it to be cursed and abandoned to evil, but as the tree shows, the goddess has already claimed Felskar. It will not always be the abode of monsters who can only hate and destroy.
0: Also there has to be a character with a Scottish accent in every fantasy production. I believe that is law at this point. And for this one, it was Tomgard. He is a straightforward man, a fighter, and somewhat impatient. In other words, he's not unlike a typical fantasy dwarf, even though he's human. And dwarves, of course, often have Scottish accents, as anyone who plays video games probably knows at this point. There are even a few lines given to Tomeguard that are actually references to the character of Dwalin as seen in the Hobbit films, in which he has a Scottish accent. Aye, Lord, these are the personal possessions of Queen Sintrasha herself. This chest is merely the centerpiece. There's another one, made of black metal, in the tunnels beyond that cave on the beach. And then the rest of it. The rest of it as a hoard of wealth beyond anyone's imagination. In fact, I don't know how I'll we'll ever get it all out of here. Von Baumeister's voice was something I just immediately heard in my mind as I was writing the character. I actually don't know where it came from. He has an RP accent that makes him sound elitist, as well as a harshness and stiffness to his tone of voice. The Witch Hunter Order is Seven Peaks' elite force in the fight against evil. Necromancers fear us, vampires cower before us, demons flee us. We are to be known for that, not for politeness. How will the servants of Lucas respect us if we do not even command the respect of these simple villagers? Captain Brogolhof was fun to do because he's from Lioncrest, which is the Ruda version of Flanders, our home. So in theory, I could have simply performed him with my native accent. However, I'm from Antwerp, and Brueckelhof is from Brughaven, which is more akin to Bruges, the capital of West Flanders, where they speak a completely different dialect. Really, despite literally only being 25 miles apart, West Flemish is as different from Antwerp Flemish as Australian is different from American English. So I had to try to do an accent that is not my own after all. (laughs) I do think it benefited the character though. It makes Brokelhoff sound like a friendly, approachable sort of captain, while still projecting authority when necessary. Aha, a man from Flatland. That may be a blessing to your journey then, as the Teresia was built in Zeestad. That is true, friend. The Teresia has delivered me home through many adventures on the high seas, and I know I would never be parted from her.
1: Art had to have a Dutch accent like Gustavs, but he had a sound very distinct from this other character, so Domin tried to give it a little bit more of an Amsterdam flavor.
0: But since I'm not Dutch, I'm not very good at distinguishing these different dialects. I hope I didn't botch it too much, that's all I can say. But his voice is also completely opposite to Gustavs, much rougher and deeper. I've had my eye on you from the beginning, blondie. While you still thought I was a poor castaway, I was already making plans about what I'd do to you once you got off the island. For Cotignac I thought we had license to do what we had avoided in Chapelle. A theatrical, over-the-top French accent. Since he is an absolute villain, we're not invited to like and empathize with this character, so he was allowed to sound off-putting. I also slightly lowered the pitch of this voice in post-production, which makes him come across as a bit more menacing. You are surrounded by 20 of us. If you draw your weapons, this will be a very short and very bloody encounter. And I don't feel like cleaning up this place.
1: Even though he only has a few lines, Crankor was a very interesting character to do. I suggested I do the voice, since I had a very clear idea of it while outlining, and I was convinced I could pull it off, especially with some of the mean's post-production magic. I actually performed Crankor's voice when I had the flu, so my voice didn't sound quite the same as usual. Then I played with a couple of variants, and mean loved the heavy breathing inspired by Darth Vader take best, so he picked that one. I am the God.
0: Of course, even the flu doesn't make my lovely wife sound like an ancient Lovecraftian crab monster the size of a house, so I had to tweak it a bit in post-production. In fact, I think it would be interesting to let you hear the original recording in comparison to the final scene.
1: You have received my blessing. (sighs) My blessing. Be so it's amazing what you can do with only two voices. They're different pitches, accents, spacings. You can make your voice sound older or younger. Like when I did the Farmer Girl at the beginning of the journey. Don't be an idiot, Ferdinand.
0: Hissed the blonde, freckled girl.
1: The monster hunters from the big city. I can tell by their hats.
0: And I'm baffled by what some basic post-production skills can do to a voice. It's uncanny how an entire cast of characters came to life that way just by using our voices and, of course, our sons. Of course, the music is a very big part of what made everything work so well, too.
1: The main theme of The Treasure of Boneyard Bay by Peter van Riet starts with the witch hunter theme, plays a la Pirates of the Caribbean, then moves into a bold, adventurous melody, totally epic. Then comes a quieter part with children's choir, which gives us a sense of wonder and discovery.
0: Peter also created an alternative version with an acoustic guitar that adds that relaxing Mediterranean feel. It's our favorite theme by Peter and our kids love it too. We play it all the time in the car. It kept on inspiring us during the writing process and we just didn't have the heart to cut it anywhere in the story, so when it plays, (laughs) we usually just let it play till the end.
1: The Crancor theme, in our opinion, is just indistinguishable from some of the best Hans Zimmer scores. We feel blessed to have been able to work with three such talented composers. Dane did an awesome job for this part of the score. It's one of my all-time favorite tracks from our stories. The bells make it feel like underwater. The organ adds to the mysterious feel. Percussion and choir tell you something big is coming. Then there is a satisfying finale with the melody that bursts free. Whenever our kids hear this track, they tell each other the tale of Crankor, or the crab monster, coming to the rescue, and getting closer, even closer, even closer to shore, finally revealing the girl that was presumed dead. They truly love it.
0: I had asked Peter to compose a theme for the budding friendship between the companions. Something that would play during their conversations and heart-to-heart moments. But the theme was actually rarely used for that and instead became the theme for all the beautiful things they see in the romantic sense of discovery. It first appears when they see the Teresia for the first time. For me it has a very noble as well as deeply nostalgic feeling.
1: During the outline process, I came up with words and a melody for Chapelle to sing at Federhals funeral. I always used to love writing lyrics when I was young, and since I couldn't write any notes, I just sang the melody and tape-recorded it or wrote small dots that I somehow could translate back into notes, without them being actual notes.
0: Erin did the same thing for the Beast of the Western Wilds with the Song of the Bog Witch. I always loved the tales, poems and songs in Tolkien's work. So I was all for it. I can't believe that there are people out there who actually skip them while reading his works.
1: Domin Proof read the song and made one small correction to it. His French is much better than mine, as his father's a retired French teacher. This tiny little detail did not only correct my lyrics, but improved the rhyme and rhythm. I recorded it and sent it to Peter. The first version sounded awful. Since I thought it more important to keep the grief in my voice while singing, than to actually try and sing it well. Then Peter got inspired by the song, ignoring the bad vocals for a while, and suggested a few changes to the melody. He basically slowed the pacing of the song to make it sadder, and he slightly adjusted the tone. Since it really inherently gave the song a more melancholic tone, I could just sing it without trying to sound sad. This improved the song enormously and made it work better as a whole. Ceux qui meurent vont ailleurs vers la lumière ou l'obscurité. Ce If the dirge doesn't break your heart during the scene where they bury Father Hell, then Peter's beautiful music definitely will. The notes following the song are delightful but devastating in the light of the events in the story. This was one of the greatest experiences during the production process of The Treasure of Boneyard Bay in terms of cooperation. I want to thank Peter again for taking my rough inspiration and bringing it to the next level. So yeah, I guess if you have the classic he's such a talented director or he's such a great actor part in the making of a movie, then this is the he's such a talented composer part in our making of.
0: I particularly love how Peter added a layer of strings and flute in the background of the song and then let it move into this slow, heartbroken string chords. I decided to make that the sad theme, from Fedahel's death onward, representing all that is lost in the journey. And also, the friendship theme wasn't used anymore past this point.
1: The music helped a great deal in developing the mood of the story. As the tone in the story changes, so does the music. I also love how he worked with three talented composers and still, when we listen to all of the music from the story as one big soundtrack, it really feels like a consistent whole.
0: I described the fight with the Bloodfather and the other guardians in the temple on Garadoso as Aztec Draugr to Dane, who loves Skyrim as I do. He got really excited about that and made some very dark dungeon music with exotic percussion that returns in various forms throughout the whole temple sequence. Inspired by James Horner's Apocalypto and Avatar scores, I voiced the creepy whispers that go myself, which was fun.
1: Like often occurs in our productions, we didn't end up using Dane's pirate theme the way it was intended. It was another gorgeous Hans Zimmer-like track that just works so much better when used at the appearance of the Vermilion Viper.
0: It had so much power and domination that I found it fit the order very well. Dane's music did so much to that scene.
1: Domín used Peter's jungle music for the track through the jungle to the temple. But when listening, I found it didn't really work. Although I loved the music, it just felt too high-paced and threatening for a track scene. So I suggested he try to replace the music he'd used in the more exciting scene where Alvarado got attacked by the snake, and that worked really well. The music captures both the mood of the setting and the thrill of the threat perfectly.
0: Even though Peter and Dane had composed several wonderful new themes and I still had all of the existing Witch Hunter music at my disposal, I knew that The Treasure of Boneyard Bay needed a lot of music. And most of it had to sound very different from anything in Witch Hunter.
1: Ivan Dutch had sent me a private message, introducing himself a long while before we started on The Treasure of Boneyard Bay. When we went looking for good royalty-free music that we could use, I was suddenly reminded of that contact. I'd listened to his tracks back then and I loved them. I'd shared his work with Domine and he was a fan of his tracks too.
0: Since most royalty-free music is very generic and lacks character, we were glad to rediscover Ivan Dutch, who specializes in music for RPGs and whose passion for fantasy and adventure was evident right away. We were even more thrilled to discover he had a Patreon page. This allowed us not only to spend our Patreon income in a direct, useful way to improve our project and support another creator, but it also offered us a great way to legally pay for music without stressing about licenses.
1: So we joined his Patreon page and got access to his music and it really saved the project. We recommend all of you games masters and dungeon masters out there to become patrons of Ivan Dutch. You'll pay a very reasonable amount for great music that's definitely worth the money. I think in a world where most creatives are struggling to get by and monetize what they create, he's found a fair and great way to do it.
0: Ivan Dutch had so many great tracks to work with. He had a rural countryside music for the beginning of the journey. dark ambient stuff for Chappelle's backstory and some epic battle music for the unexpected all-out war that unfolded on the beach of Skullcrest Cave. And he keeps making new music, so we're already looking forward to the next project. The music was not specifically composed for our project, but it makes the user rights straightforward and it doesn't cause any copyright claims on YouTube, which is a great relief. In terms of his working method, I think Ivan Dutch is a pioneer amongst composers.
1: We did a collaboration with Ivan Dutch too. He regularly gives extra fantasy-related content to his patrons, so he was interested to use our eBooks as a reward in exchange for two custom tracks for Boneyard Bay. In the end, we decided to launch Boneyard Bay earlier than they could be delivered, but we made chapters with these alternative tracks for the finding of the treasure scene, and the walking around in Boneyard Bay scene available to our patrons. In the end, the Treasure and Boneyard Bay tracks were added to one of his albums, so we're glad our story inspired great music that many RPG players will be able to enjoy for years.
0: Starting our own Patreon page has definitely positively impacted the production of The Treasure of Boneyard Bay. Of course, there is the accountability, Since we no longer just did this for ourselves, we had to show a lot more commitment than before. It gave us the extra motivation to work harder, faster, stronger, better.
1: We were also able to purchase some plugins with our earnings. One of the plugins made it easier for Domain to create credible acoustics and reverb. For example, fitting for a cave environment. This also saved him an awful lot of editing work. And of course, we mentioned the music of Ivan Dutch that we directly pay for with our Patreon earnings. We hope that our Patreon platform will grow in the future and attract many supporters from $1 to $50 a month that we can please with extra and early content and exclusive merchandise. It would be great if one day we'd get enough financial support to make audio epics not something we do on the side after our working hours and the care of our children, but as our daytime job. We have tons of outlines just waiting to be developed into audio stories that we're really excited about working on. That's not just stories set in Ruda, but there are completely new settings to discover as well.
0: We'd like to thank all of our Patreon supporters.
1: Our Guardsmen and Captains of the Guard.
0: Our Witch Hunters, Arno Teva, Caitlin Bredenkamp, Kat Moseri, Osarion, and Ryan Stock.
1: Our Witch Hunter Masters, Cody Heitch, Yiji Dusht, Kadir Hussein, and Mix and Match.
0: Our grand generals Cameron Brantley, Joseph Stahl, Liam Gabriel and Tony Raniko.
1: Our Saint Peter Strandkrono, that we want to thank in particular for the many questions that have inspired our latest podcast and this making of.
0: And last but not least. Our creators, Matt Batain and Dustin Garner.
1: Thank you so much, guys, for your support. You are the most important reason why the treasure of Boneyard Bay surmounted the other stories in terms of sound quality and sheer epicness. It's definitely our favorite of all our own stories.
0: We also want to thank all of our listeners on YouTube and elsewhere, and our readers, of course, for those who prefer the novel or ebook. Your comments sharing your experiences with our stories are what keep us motivated to create more audio epics.
1: And with these words of thanks that cannot express how grateful we are, we'd like to wrap up this making-off. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have any more questions about the treasure of Boneyard Bay, feel free to share them with us in the comments section. Most comments get a personal reply. We hope you'll return to us for our next podcast. This was Eileen wishing you an immersed, inspired, creative, and epic rest of the week.
0: And I wish you the same. This is Domine, signing off.